Everyone is creative in their own way, though. We need to really broaden our understanding of what creativity is. I mean, the way you arrange a flower vase, the way you dress in the morning, what you decide to cook, how you parent your children, right? So these are creative endeavors. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. I'm Jennifer Cox, and I'm hoping to discover how people all kinds of people create lives of purpose and meaning. Each episode, I talk to someone who seems to be managing to do it, from artists to salespeople to homemakers to pastors to entrepreneurs. You'll hear their stories of joy and triumph and also fears and failures. Because creating a life that is right for you requires your whole self. That's a theme I'm hearing over and over in these conversations. Friends, today is a very special episode. This is our one-year anniversary. (laughs) Not of the Beautiful and True Project itself, that's in December, but of the podcast. A year ago, tomorrow, which is the 31st, was when I released the very first episode with Mel Coriel. I should go back and talk to her now that I've kind of pivoted a little bit and know a little bit more what I'm doing. That would be amazing. I'm not sure what I expected when I started this. I I don't think I had an expectation. I'm not sure I do have one. I just wanted to explore the ideas of beauty and truth in our lives and how the intersection of those two things can create purpose and meaning. And then a couple of months ago, I pivoted a little bit to still talk about the beautiful and true, but more in the context of how those those things that are so important to us, that are beautiful and true, how those things go into helping us create lives, not just to find our meaning and our purpose, which is amazing, but how they shape our lives. And that has been a wonderful pivot and has given me so much. And I hope it's given you something too. In the beginning, I was just following my flower, the flower that was meant for me, as Sarah Beth Tanner would say. And it's, it's been truly rewarding. It seems really fitting that on this anniversary episode, I'm talking with Sarah Greenman. Sarah, like all of my guests, is an amazing human being. She is, perhaps more than anything, an artist, in the broadest sense of the word. She's the founder of Creative Alchemy, a course designed to help free creativity by exploring the seasonal round of the year. She's a painter who uses color so vibrantly it hurts. It hurts so good. And she has a gallery show of her collection Startling Truth opening this week, which is so exciting. She's also an activist, an actor, a playwright, a mother, a lover of nature, and one of the most grounded people I've ever had the privilege of meeting. Her story is rich and complex and challenging and chosen. Chosen deliberately, chosen carefully and thoughtfully, mindful of her responsibilities to her family and her deep love and deep respect for them. Mindful of the ways her choices reverberate in the world. Mindful of her own creative spirit. It's a conversation that is full of joy and grief and beauty and truth. 
and some really good advice for times when you might feel a little stuck. Repeatedly, Sarah blew my mind with how well she expresses her thoughts about her own creativity and and her own life. I think it's a conversation you're going to relish as much as I did. I certainly hope so. Here we go. I just said this, but I'm going to say it again. I am so excited to be talking to you. Absolutely thrilled. I, I know I mentioned this in my email, but when our mutual friend Shannon gave me the print of your painting, mm. it was just, at first I was like, what is this? And then I realized that Shannon had remembered how much I had loved the Red Rocks of Sedona yeah. and that your, I don't know if your your painting was specifically in that region, but it it captivated all of the colors and mm. the the feelings that I felt when I was there. And now it hangs on my wall and I will look at it every single day. Oh, that makes me immeasurably happy. I'm so glad it makes me immeasurably happy. <laughs> I, I'm I, one of the reasons I'm so excited to be talking to you is you're actually the first guest that I've interviewed that I don't know personally. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I know. I believe, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that we met in passing at this conference. I know I've met you. I mean, I, I've like held your body at like right there with me. Like, I know I've had my hands on your shoulders and like looked in your eyes and talked to you. I know it. Possibly. I, I, I feel kind of the same way, but yeah. I don't remember exactly when me that either. happened. There's so. a lot going on. <laughs> there, there was a lot going on. And I, I believe, was that the biggest... Of, was that the first Tatera conference or the no it wasn't the first but it was the was it the largest this was in New York yeah it was New York that was the last one and it was uh the largest to date yeah from what I understand yeah it was phenomenal I had an amazing weekend oh I'm so glad I'm gonna start with something that uh, I'm stealing shamelessly yeah. from Steal Brene away. Brown <laughs> you're stealing from the good one <laughs> I'm gonna steal like, from someone good yeah. steal from someone good I would love to know your story yeah I know a little bit about it. I know that you are a theater artist mm -hmm. and a playwright mm -hmm. and a director, I believe. Yes. Stage Sometimes, director. depending. Sometimes. <laughs> depending on what's needed. <laughs> and you're a painter. Yes. And you lead people through creative experiences of the year called yes. Creative Alchemy. Yes. There is so much going on. And I saw in your blog that you also at one point called yourself an urban homesteader yeah, in Dallas. I did. <laughs> and the reason I pick up on that is because one of my very best friends is also right now an urban homesteader oh, in fantastic. Dallas. Well, Dallas is, you know, people think Texas, oh gosh, like I know what Texas is, but you don't know what Texas is if you're thinking like down in the city. I mean, there's 6 million people in the DFW area. It's like Los Angeles. So for us mm -hmm. to um, homestead in the city feel, felt really like rebellious and, and wonderful. Transgressive. Uh, very, right? Um, I read a book by Shannon Hayes called Radical Homemaking, and it sort of blew my mind about um, capitalism, and it blew my mind about how we uh, consume mindlessly and living in the city and being in the sort of lifestyle that I had been in, it just felt like a wake up call. It's like, girl, mm -hmm. you got to be doing something different. So I started 
a huge garden in my backyard and we got chickens and I made yogurt and we did all that stuff. But it was also aligned with some things that my children were really needing at the time. And so it was a, a nice sort of kismet moment of like the right book and the right sort of modality of living at the right time for what we needed. Uh, when you say what they needed, it's like a connection to the earth or sure, a, yeah. something to watch grow or I'm putting I, words in your mouth. No, I, I um, have two children and they both have wildly different needs. Um, yes, one of them really wanted to just get their hands in the dirt and like feel the sun on their face and be outside and play and living in the city. That was, you know, there was not a lot of like go out and play. It was mostly like, let me watch you like a helicopter mom while no thing hurts you. And <laughs> so to have um, space for uh, my oldest child to really like be lusciously, like sensuously grounded in their body while they're growing was wonderful. And my other child, Charlie, who's my younger child, um, they have a, a host of medical issues. And so making all of our own food, making yogurt, um, eating food out of our backyard really helped me manage his medical care, knowing yeah. that he was not being poisoned <laughs> from the inside out. <laughs> so I really appreciated that part of radical homemaking for sure. Yeah. So start before that. Yeah. Before Dallas and homemaking. My story. Yeah, and start as early as you want. You can start from once when I was a little tiny fetus. <laughs> when I was a tiny little bib. Um, so I'm from Central California, uh, which is on the unceded territory of the Shumash. And I loved living near the sea. And I had very artistic parents who did things like community theater as our fun like afternoon thing that we would do. You know, most people are like, well, we like football or we play Pinochle. And my family's like, do you want to put on a musical? So, um, <laughs> which I loved growing up. And I met all sorts of really wonderful people my grandma called them outside the box people. <laughs> and so I met a lot of really outside the box people. And that really informed sort of the way I, I grew up as a kid. I really thought everybody like, you know, did Sound of Music for fun on the weekends. Don't they? Right? I think everybody should. <laughs> and so um, that, that really just infused my life with a lot of art. And I also had parents who appreciated art and took me to it. They put it in my life, no matter what. And my grandmother was a music teacher and, you know, people were handing me journals and saying, you should be writing and paints and saying, you should be painting. And so that was always a really permissive, beautiful part of, of my world. So yeah, I, I felt really at home in the theater world. I went to college for theater. I went to PCPA Theater Fest um, after college for their apprentice acting apprentice program and um, fell in love with writing there. There was a woman at the time there. Her name was Patricia Troxell. She's now passed from breast cancer, but she came to me one day and said, you know, there aren't really a lot of roles for a physical type like you. For those of you who are listening, I'm six feet tall. I'm 250. You know, I'm just like a very large, present person with a big energy. And she was like, you need to be writing your own roles. So I started writing and I just fell in love with it. And at the same time, I fell in love with uh, my partner, Jack Greenman, who is also an actor. And so we, we made a life. In 2004, we got married and 
he left PCPA, as did I. Uh, at the time, we were both resident artists, and we went to Seattle. And um, shortly thereafter, he was working at Cornish College of the Arts and was looking at a job in Dallas. And we were pregnant with our first kid. And I was like, oh, no. I'm an actor who's having a baby. <laughs> That's a bad thing. <laughs> the industry doesn't like that very much. So no, um... <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, sidebar: I was just reading in the uh, the New York Times about how dancers, ballet dancers, oh, yeah. and and modern dancers, professional dancers, were using the pandemic time to have babies. I kind of love, yeah. On this on this sidebar, so many of the wonderful artists I know, actors, dancers, hoofers, uh, they're all having babies. And I'm like, oh, you know what the pandemic is going to be? It's going to be the generation of children from artists who felt like they could finally have a family. And I, oh. I'm, I mean, I have so many friends having babies. I can't believe it. And, and of all ages, like 20s through 50s, women who are like, I'm ready. Yeah. Let's and do all this. They're going to be fairy babies. I know. I love it. It makes me really happy and and very um, hopeful about the this incoming generation that was born during pandemic. Ooh. Yeah. So we had our baby, and um, we we liked we liked what we did. We were like, "This kid's great. We're great at this." We were really self congratulatory, and we thought we'd roll the dice and have another one and tempt the gods. And uh, we had our second child, who I mentioned has a host of medical issues. He had a series of strokes in utero before he was born and he came into the world presenting all the things, um, cerebral palsy and hemiplegia and epilepsy. And he was, we had doctors sort of shaking their heads going, this is going to be real hard. And they weren't wrong. (laughs) So, um, we're 10 years in now after that birth and, um, the, the life I had after children and the life I had before children were just really different. And once I had my kids, um, you know, nothing takes you out of the running in terms of your work in the theater, like a child. And then nothing really wipes you out of the running, uh, like a medically fragile special needs child that Mm -hmm. that's in all industries. I think we really don't have ways, um, to care for parents of special needs in this country. So, um, that became my 24 hour a day job real fast. And so I had a toddler and a baby that I was, um, caring for not only as mother, but also nurse and, um, continuity care and therapist and all of the things that we take on as mama and, it was just a really dark time because I, I'd been trained to write plays and be in plays and to direct plays and to make theater. And um, it was kind of my own pandemic. It was like, it just went away. (laughs) The whole industry for me disappeared. And I was, there was one night where I was just feeling really pitiful, (laughs) feeling sorry for myself. And I had my son, Charlie in a little baby backpack And um, I'd just given him some drugs because that's what we were doing. We were giving him all sorts of drugs for seizures and um, lots of medication. So he was all drugged up and he was on my body and I just was feeling terrible. And I started painting. I had this canvas from Ikea (laughs) that was ugly. And I was like, that's ugly. That's not bringing me joy. That doesn't spark joy. I'm going to (laughs) paint it. So (laughs) with my baby on my back, I painted a painting and I loved it. And I thought, oh, I could, I could do more of this. And I did. I just kept painting. 
I figured if I can't be creative in a more sort of public expressive way, like on stage, then I can definitely at least follow the impulse of my heart and make something um, for me in this way. And I, at least I could have some sort of creative life. And uh, that's, so that's when I started painting. And about a year later, a friend of mine saw one of my paintings and said, oh my God, I would love to have that. And I thought, oh, go ahead, take it. And she was like, no, 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 I'd like to buy it from you. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, she wants to buy it. That's strange. And, yeah. you know, you just sort of, I, I wasn't like, I was making it. This, for, yeah, it was yeah. for me. <laughs> it was for me and I, and to, to help me cope with this. And then as a creative outlet, yeah. and somebody wants to give me cash monies monies for this what is money i know they were like um yeah i love it i want to buy it you know how much are your paintings so that began sort of a, a new world for me and that was in 2011 when that occurred and i've been painting ever since I i'm so curious when when she asked that how much how much for this painting yeah, uh, yeah, it's terrifying. Listener, right? I wish you could see the the look on Sarah's <laughs> face right now. She's like, <laughs> it's terrifying because um, you, you, there's this moment where you think, well, I'm not a painter, I'm not an artist, the way I would consider someone else who's a professional painter, and so I had to have a real reckoning about what I thought the idea of professional was and what I thought the idea of working artist was. And at the time, I had a friend say, listen just because you're taking care of babies right now and you're not on stage doesn't mean you're an actor. You were an actor for like 15 years. You haven't been one for 18 months, like big deal. You're still an actor. And I thought, well, then shit, I'm the, excuse, excuse me. I don't know if we can curse here, but we I was can. like, okay, great. Cause I'm a cursor. I was just like, well, shit. Then I, then I guess I'm an artist. I'm a painter. I can play roles. What if my role now is that I'm a painter? Um, so I, oh, wow. I just sort of took it on. And, and plus, I'll tell you what, like, I, there's so much self doubt for all creatives, I think, like, is what I'm saying mattering? Do people want to read what I'm writing? Do people want to see what I have to bring? Um, and does the story I tell matter at all? And once I had Charlie, he was really like this beautiful priority setter. Like, as soon as he came, I'm like, who am I saving it for? This kid could be dead in a day. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And um, and I don't mean to be flip about that. I, I just mean that there were real problems in front of me. The problem was not, am I an artist or not? <laughs> the problem was, can I keep my child alive? And so if somebody wanted to give me money for painting, great. I need money because I live in Texas and the healthcare is shit. So yes, please, I'll take your money. And they got a painting and I got some cash and I felt good about it. And I thought, well, let's do this. And then so did you, you continued painting. Mm -hmm. Did you then decide that you were going to find ways to sell these paintings? Was it a suddenly, oh, this is a business opportunity, as well as an artistic expression? I mean, I knew I wanted to make a lot of work. You know, when you have that feeling inside of you, like, oh, I have lots of stories to tell. And, um, when I'm a playwright and an actor, those stories just come out of my mouth and fall onto the stage and people take them home with them and they hold them in their hearts forever. And that's it. It doesn't take up actual physical space in my house, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. a canvas. <laughs> so I knew I had lots of stories to tell. And I knew that if I were going to um, have a healthy relationship with my paintings, I needed to let them go 
and sell them. So yeah, I did start thinking about ways in which I could um, share my work in an ethical, holistic way that was aligned with how I tell stories and how I hold space and how I make art. Will you tell me more about that? What does that mean, an ethical, holistic? Sure. Um, As we talked about at the very beginning, I... I was on a radical homemaking, you know, jag, uh, and I still am. I moved out to rural Eastern Oregon. I live very rurally and do some farming. And um, oh, and the pictures, the pictures from from your home area are oh, just this place is unreal. They hurt me. They're so beautiful. <laughs> like it's, I look at them and I just ache. It's aching. It's but achingly beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. achingly beautiful out here. No, absolutely. <laughs> For sure. See, I don't even know where I was going because I, I got st- I got stopped by my own visual of the location where I live. Oh, I know. I'm stuck too. There are flowers and, oh, and yeah. mountains. And- no, it's beautiful. Okay. I get totally, It's the hills are alive for sure. You asked me about ethical yes. Uh, work. Yes. So I have a very um, strained relationship with capitalism and um, extractive capitalism. And I believe and see in real time always that we are um, abusing, using, and oppressing people and taking what they make and do and feel. And we are extracting that and then we are turning it into selling it. And I have um, lots of complicated feelings about that process. So for me, at the time, I make art that's very connected to my life and my story I have a child who can't even speak. Do I even have this child's permission to tell his story? I don't even know. (laughs) Um, That's a conversation I'm having all the time with myself. Um, I want to make sure that my work is um, in right relationship with the world around me. I don't want to be culturally appropriating other people's stuff because that's baloney and crazy. And um, I want to be in a sort of reparations uh, conversation with the land that I inhabit. So at the time I was a new mom, I was in a new place. I wasn't native to that area. I didn't know how to make art in that place. Um, I was still only three years new to Dallas. And so, yeah, I had lots of questions about how to make art that is connected to my own lineage and my own lived experience and then how to sell it ethically and have it still be connected to my life as a mom and my, my, my life as a creative without sort of quote unquote using my child's story to sell it, which was one of the, I think the first sale I ever had, I was like, Oh, she just pities me. I would pity me too. But I thought that's not how I want to sell. I want to sell because my work really means something to somebody that it speaks to them. I don't want it to be like, Oh, this lady has this disabled child. And so we're going to help her out. (laughs) That didn't, feel good at all in my body. So yeah, ethically making work has a lot to do with the kinds of stories we're telling, how we tell them, and then how we sell them, if we sell them. And I imagine that as an artist, the line, especially in your case, between telling your story and telling your child's story, Mm -hmm. uh, I would think that would be a really hard line to navigate yeah. In the way that you're talking about. Yeah, a lot of people is. wouldn't think about it. I've certainly seen a lot of mommy bloggers, some of sure. whom are quite famous, who sure. are using their family stories to, <laughs> in yeah. ways that seem like, hmm, hmm I don't know. questionable. <laughs> Perhaps. I name no names. <laughs> yeah. But... 
No, I, I feel that. I The question I ask myself always is, is this authentically yours, Sarah, to tell? You know, I'm not pretending to understand what my son feels or thinks, but I do know what I feel and think as his caregiver. So that's where I ground my work, for sure. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm I'm writing a memoir right now just for myself mostly. I'm Hopefully it'll be published someday. But right now it's for me and my first lines are, I don't have permission to tell this story and I will never get it. But it's also deeply interlinked with how I understand myself. And so here we go. I'll do my best. That's, I think that's probably what you're talking about here is uh, perhaps my deepest definition of beautiful and true. Mm. A lot of times when I talk about, when I've talked about this in the past, people think I'm like, oh, I'm talking about things that are just wonderful and airy. Right. And no, I, most of the time when I think about things that are beautiful and true, I think about things that are very hard yeah, and challenging and, but also uplifting. I think the, the gravity of something that's truly filled with beauty, the gravity of it is that there's grief. Yes. For it to be beautiful means that you can lose it. I mean, that's where, as I, as I continued to paint and as I continue to write, most of my work lands in that sort of wonderful, the center of the Venn diagram of grief and beauty or grief and joy. And I think it's so rich in the middle, in that messy, gooey, primordial middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where, for me, things matter. And so what is beautiful is sometimes clearer than what is true. And what is true is that it'll go or you'll lose it or you'll have to say goodbye at some point. And, um, and so that kind of threshold work, that liminal work in the middle is just, that's so juicy to me. That's where I want like all my work to land always. (laughs) I was going to ask you about your family life as a kid, but you talked about that. You talked about how they, your, your parents did. Yeah. I see that if your parents are doing musicals in the afternoon, that they were quite supportive of your, they were your choice to make a creative life. Yeah. They're what my gr- grandparents would call groovy, you know, like we were groovy <laughs> people. <laughs> they were, they were really supportive and they just are generally supportive people. <laughs> Uh, they both had work that they did that was not in the arts. Um, they were, it was it was creative. One was a teacher and the other one's a hairdresser. So definitely creative. Definitely um, um, people-centered, creative um, work. And they're both really outgoing and they love a good conversation and a good joke. And so there's a lot of sort of showmanship in my family. <laughs> and I think that my my journey with that was to recognize showmanship when it was showmanship and presentation and the the face we sort of present to the outside world as opposed to artfulness or like really grounded creative expression i mean we any you know we can get up and do camelot great but i got real interested in what story do you really, really, really want to tell that no one knows? That became where I went with my work. 
Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a separation from, and so I think there's a little bit, um, and they might even not, they'll, you know, if they heard me saying this, they'd be like, I don't know if that's true. So I say <laughs> that as a, um, as a caveat, but I think there's a little bit of trepidation from my parents' point of view, um, especially my dad, uh, like, I wonder what she will say <laughs> because, you know, it's not all great. Like our family is a very complicated family and I use my own life to talk about it. We lost my brother to a drug overdose in 2015. Um, and it was not his first <laughs> drug overdose. And so, and that was really public and scary. And there was a lot of secretiveness in our family. And so while I love the sort of front facing jollity and like um, cheer, the good cheer of, and, and pleasure of making art together, there wasn't a depth to it. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really interested in transformative, creative processes rather than um, entertaining ones. <laughs> when do you think, did, have you always had that? as a, Or did, was there a shift at some point that moved you into, was there a moment, was it a... I think when my parents got divorced, um, I remember when they got divorced, I was 12 and I was in, um, we got back home. They'd they'd taken us to the beach to tell us, which was very nice to be in a lovely location. And then they drove us home and I was like devastated and shocked. You know, I was like, what? We're the, we're the most amazing family ever. Like, how is this possible? And my brother was like, wake up. (laughs) Like, where have you been? And I was devastated to learn that I had been tricked. You know, like I bought it, like I hook, line and sinker, like I totally went with it. Um, And I really took things at face value. Now, I was a child. So and people lied to me. So I I get why that happened. And I don't have um, guilt or shame about that. But um, I was really impressed with my brother's sort of sense of what was really going on. And I wondered what I'd missed. Like, how did I miss that? And so I became really skeptical, I think, as a teenager. It was like, yeah, okay, that's what you said. But what, you know, what, what's the subtext? Like, let's, let's go deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was your brother older? He was younger by 11 months. So we were Irish twins, right? We're born in the same, yeah, calendar year. <laughs> Fascinating that he was, that he was like, Oh, oh he was, been? yeah, no, he was, he was very connected to um, the emotional undercurrent of life, which is maybe why he had a drug problem. I'm not sure, but you know, <laughs> there are things that I look at now and I go, oh, yeah, I miss that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, now thinking okay. about like three different things at once. Um, That's called being human. <laughs> I know. I'd love it if you would talk a little bit about creative alchemy. Yeah. Because you were generous enough to send me the, the Beltane section. And I, have, I haven't gotten a chance to really experience it, but I listened to the homily. Oh, great. And it's just beautiful. I'm so glad you like it. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Tell me about when this started, how it came about, the connection to the circle of the year, mm-hmm. everything. 
Yeah, so I come from a Celtic tradition, um, sort of pagan Celtic tradition. <laughs> My people were Scots and Irish folk, um, and they were country people. And so they really did follow the eight seasonal festivals of the year, which are the um, solstices and equinoxes, and then the cross quarters, which the Celtic people uh, consider the fire festivals. So those are sort of midway points between the solstices and the equinoxes. And there's eight on the calendar of the year, or that we call the wheel of the year. And I love the idea of the cycle of the wheel, because um, in a culture, like I mentioned earlier, that's super capitalistic, extractive culture, we have this sense of urgency, like if we don't get it done now, that's it. It's over. And the cycle is a great way to remind myself, at least, no, 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 this is a wheel. We're going to be here again. We've been here before. And this is just about syncing up our innate rhythm with the rhythm of nature. I think the more we think of ourselves as separate from nature, as separate from the cycle, as exempt from the, uh, the trajectory of our planet, the more we can exploit it, harm it, extract, right? So uh, for me, one of the ways in which I sort of sink back into right relationship with the world around me and sink back into um, a natural order in terms of communication with the elements, and and sounds very witchy because it is, (laughs) um, is to follow the wheel of the year. And I found if I really listened to my own creative impulses, they really matched what was happening with mama nature. So out here in Eastern Oregon, we have some serious seasons. Like when it's winter, it is winter. Like there is four feet of snow on the ground and all of the waterways ice over and it is three degrees outside. And so it forces you to follow its lead, which is to incubate, become dormant, rest, preserve all your energy. (laughs) And Um, to ruminate, to think, to putter, to get close to that fire, to that like internal flame and think about what you're going to do when the sun comes back out. (laughs) And so I loved that there was a built-in period of rest. And for a mother of two who's on the hamster wheel in a big city like Dallas, you know, when I moved out here, it was so obvious. It's like, no, you have to stop. You can't do anything. It's blisteringly cold outside. So I was able to rest and I thought, this is good. I'm going to bloom when things bloom and I will go out when things go out. And I found the first year that I was here that when the spring did come, it was so hard earned and well won. And when I got to finally go out, there were things that had like survived the blasting cold and it was a fucking miracle. And I know I'm, I'm a smart person. Like I know that flowers bloom after the snows, like I get it, but to see it in real time and to watch something skeletal and near death resurrect itself at the time of resurrection, like right around Easter, mm-hmm. you know, in the sort of Christianized way we've handled the wheel of the year with our holidays. Like it was well, just such a, not an accident. No, 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 no. Clearly. Again, oppressive structures trying to tamp down old knowledge and ancestral knowledge. I was just really blown away. And I thought this, there's something here. I'm going to start working just with the cycles. And I did that for two years. So when um, I, I did leave, uh, I last summer, I left a job. Uh, I was with Statera Arts. I had um, been 
wanting to step away from that work for a while, um, just because it wasn't aligning perfectly with what I was doing. And we were coming to the end of what I felt like we were capable of doing as a nonprofit organization. And so um, personally, I walked from that and walked back into the space of, okay, I'm an independent artist again. What am I going to do? And I wanted to share this way of working. So the Creative Alchemy Cycle was born, and it is a year-long evergreen kind of process. Um, and I send out eight bundles a year. There's a digital virtual aspect to it where I send videos of um, process videos of me in the studio, and then out in the great wide open videos where we get out into nature and we imbibe the inspiration from the source. And um, we talk about ways to uh, catalyze that kinds of uh, those kinds of natural inspirations into our work and I bring it into the studio and I tell stories that are hooked up to the myths and the traditions of the season and it really helps me at least um, tune my ear and tune my body and tune my work to the natural rhythms and this to me is an ecological um, social justice issue mm-hmm. if I'm tuned in to what's happening in the world for real, right now in front of me, and I am in sync with it, then I am a much better uh, co-conspirator in our co-arising. And it's a it's a way to be activist that feels, for me, really grounded in my original lineage, which is this Irish-Scottish lineage, which is just filled with a bunch of stocky, awesome people who are living on the edge of society, like clinging to the rocks, trying to find a way forward, you know, very tribal in their own way. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it felt really good to sort of sink back into my own lineage and remember that, that ancestral wisdom. Was that part, was that part of your growing up? Was that, that uh, connection to the seasons, the, what you call the witchy kind of elements of this, was that, Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I think because uh, we were theater people in quotes, (laughs) we did things like May Day where we like dressed up and we had like our, our flower crowns. And and I, I was really interested in storytelling and my grandparents were definitely Scottish and said so. And we talked about it a lot. So, um, and my grandparents on the other side were definitely Irish and we talked about that a lot. So I had a, a, that influence was very strong and the theatrical part of those cultures was very strong. And, um, that theatrical tradition comes out of a religious one. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. The May Queen and the, uh, you know, her consort, the Forest King, like that's that's a theater moment for them (laughs) and was for us. But it goes way back and it's really deep and and has religious beginnings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Part of creating a life is approaching things with and I I suspect you might take objection. I'm putting I'm worried about what I'm about (laughs) to say. No, no, say it. Say the thing. um, (laughs) That there is that that there is an entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. uh, to it. Yeah, and, there is. Um, I don't I take objection to... with that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, at all. <laughs> well, sometimes entrepreneurial sounds kind of capitalistic and yeah. it doesn't have to be. No, I, I don't see it as such. It's a it's about a spirit of adventure and experimentation and trying new things and trying to find the, the best path forward is yeah. how I think of it. Yeah, I do too. Um, and I think the best entrepreneurs that I've been listening to and reading about think about it that way as well um 
I, I can see very clearly that you have some of that yourself. And I'm wondering, how do you go about approaching artistry and this creative alchemy that you're, that you're offering as a business? Mm-hmm. Are you, would you be willing to talk about that a little sure, bit? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I know I, I'm asking because I know that I have a, a, a strong handful of artists who listen to this and yeah. they're always thinking about how, how can I eat my art? How right. can I pay my rent with my art? And they should be able to. Um, they should be able they to. They should be able to. One of the things that I um, needed to learn how to do was talk about the value of my work mm. uh, and talk about it without wavering, without using, um, well, I just do this, or I've been thinking about that, or you know, that sort of passive voice that comes with claiming space. It's really hard as well for women. So if you're <laughs> a female artist like that, you know, double whammy, bam, bam. Um, so when I start, when I started realizing that I don't know how to talk about my work and its value, <laughs> I thought, oh, I need to practice. So I started working with a cohort of women um, and non-binary folks and femmes who were who were practicing together. We all had a shared mission mission, and we all were creatives. We were all entrepreneurial in some way. And we all worked through what we sort of called for ourselves. Um, and it's not new. It's not like we own it, but a justice lens. Like we have a justice lens and mission driven work, purpose driven work, and we have accountability practices in place. And we're really interested in moving the dial forward on the national conversation around social justice. So that was what sort of bound us together as a group and it was a really nice diverse group of women and um and they helped me practice talking about the value of my work and it's just like rehearsal (laughs) it really is you just have to be like okay why does it matter let's go and um (laughs) and I and I have some folks who look at what I do and they're like gosh that's kind of arrogant like you think you have an answer or a pathway forward that's going to connect social justice work with like your little paintings out in Eastern Oregon. I'm like, yeah, I do. I do. Well, but you know what I I always hear when I hear that, I'm like, Oh, they they're in pain. They don't understand the the value of their own work. How could I pot, you know, right. Speaking of Brene Brown, like the two two editorial things are, who do you think you are? And you're not good enough. And I'd rather have people ask, who do you think you are? Then for me to self berate and be like, I'm not good enough. So I, if I have to pick one, I'm picking that you don't like what I do as opposed to, I don't like what I do. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's also a very wise and generous thing to say, Oh, they're in pain. They are on some level. They've got to be, they're attacking your ability to stand firm in your art and say, no, this has value and this has worth. Yeah. And, and I mean, in that attack, you still have the capacity to be like, no, they're, they're in pain. They may uh, not know the value of their own stuff. Yeah. If having Charlie taught me anything, it's that we're all in some sort of pain and we are all coming to the table with the fewer tools than we actually need to do the job. And so I really feel like there needs to be grace around these kinds of conversations because we don't, we don't bring our best selves always to it. And in and I'm not perfect. Like I've had that moment. I've been that person who's like, who do they think they are? I've had the thought. And if I really get to the root of that question, it's because I am not 
at the center of my work. I am not doing what I want to do. I don't have sovereignty over my own work. I don't have agency in my life. I don't have choices in front of me. And so I take it out on people who do or seem to, because that's another piece of the puzzle with social media. (laughs) So I really, um, again, after I had Charlie, the question, who am I saving it for, just keeps coming up and up and up. And so in terms of an entrepreneurial spirit, yes. I have a lot of forward energy about my work because I don't know how long I'll be able to do it. And I have something very specific I'm trying to do, which is I'm trying to shatter the nightmare of isolation and the illusion of separateness that keeps us in a state of harming each other. That's what I'm trying to do with my stories, my work, my paintings, my creative alchemy cycle, my creative offerings. I would love to resource us with some tangible tools that are actually grounded in real life, like nature, (laughs) uh, that we can use to tell our stories, form real bonds of co-conspiratorial connection, and... um, that we can create intimacy and closeness and make bold moves together as a society. That's what I'm really trying to do. And I know that sounds really crazy and highfalutin to some people. And they're like, that's insane. No one person can do that. And they're right. No one person has the answer and no one person can do it. But I am, I know a part of legions of people who are doing work like this in their own way, from their own point of view, using their own ancestral wisdom and knowledge to move this conversation forward. And I really think our lives depend upon it. I just had the thought as you were talking that it's almost arrogant to say that your work doesn't have value. A little bit, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not even sure exactly what I mean by that, but as, but your being so centered in that suddenly was like, oh, I need to think about this more. Yeah. I don't know exactly what I said. I think it's true, <laughs> but I don't know how. And it's funny. I think, again, people just, they're, they're in a sense, uh, they're in a sense, excuse me, they're in a sense of um, pain or they're in a sense of um not knowing themselves what they are here to do. Not that everybody has to like align their work with their purpose. That's silly. I I don't think every that's for everybody. It isn't. Um, There are so many ways to live on this earth and we do not have to be producing something all the time. God, please. We do not have to be producers to be worth something. And so um, my way of being in the world though, is one of forward motion and one of production. And I don't mean that I'm producing a thing. I just, I, I have, um, much to my family's chagrin, like an undeniable urge to always be making something that's creativity for me is like a system in the body, like a circulatory system or a lymphatic system or a nervous system. It's like my creative system. And if I don't like have a caloric intake where I don't like dump some calories in there. And and what I mean by calories is like make some art. (laughs) Um, Then that system starts to die away and feels really, you know, (laughs) peaked and (laughs) the pallor goes away. And I start to feel a little listless because I'm not feeding that system. So it's really connected to my own overall health and well-being as well. Do you think some kind of creative expression is important for everyone? Yes. And, and I maybe think everyone is we, too broad, but let's say everyone no, includes like almost everyone. Everyone is creative 
in their own way, though, I mean, we really have taken creativity, um, you know, in quotes, as um, like a thing that artists do. And we need to really broaden our understanding of what creativity is. I mean, the way you arrange a flower vase, the way you dress in the morning, what you decide to cook, how you parent your children, how the you way you relate to your relate spouse, here's everything, right? So these are creative endeavors. And the only mm-hmm. reason humans are still knocking it out of the park out here doing stuff making stuff inventing stuff is because we are by nature creative beings and it's a part of our life and it shows up in a lot of ways you know and it doesn't always turn into a play or a song or a ballet Um, sometimes it just turns into a really potent life and Mm -hmm. isn't that what we're all after (laughs) And this is specifically what I'm trying to to get at here. Mm-hmm. Like I've talked to a lot of people who are explicitly creative, but I've also talked to people who don't even consider themselves creative, right? And when and would even say they aren't. Yes, <laughs> and this was this was even before I took this pivot to because uh, a couple of months ago I read I your just, thing. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a really beautiful solidifying for me of what. Oh, it's like of course I'm trying to do That's this. How did doing. I not know yes. this from the beginning? Yeah. Um. But yeah, I have I have known people who are absolutely just they're stay at home moms, and they would say I'm not creative at all. Yeah. Um, I I know somebody who has a creativity in finding sales. Yeah. And has this capacity to, it, it's just it's just absolutely genius yeah. the way that she can just shave pennies off of so many little things. It's I, I'm astounded because I don't have that. I no, wish I really, that. I think if there is an issue or a problem in someone's life and they come up with some kind of elegant solution for that problem, that is creativity in action. And, you know, some people are like, that's critical thinking. Like, yes. So is creativity. <laughs> like that, that's, you know, critical thinking. That is creativity in motion. And creativity is also a way to bring beauty into your world. We all need it. We all have to have it. Some kind of beauty. That is our, that's a little sign that we're alive. (laughs) And so um, while critical thinking may be a survival technique, I think creativity is when we turn that survival technique into simultaneously a way to create beauty around us, which is about pleasure and joy and the art of aliveness, as my friend Flora Bully calls it. That's lovely. Yeah. And there's an element of paying attention. Mm, Mary Oliver, to notice deeply, that is a form of prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paying attention. That's the biggest thing. And that's one of the things that, uh, one of the, the most prominent things that, as I've been talking to people about this, the ones who are really engaged in creative lives of any kind or creative mm-hmm. endeavors of any kind, it's about really just paying attention. Yeah. And maybe this is an outside perspective, but I think a lot of people are just like letting lives flow by them, which is, I, yeah. I, almost, I was like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I was like, do I really believe that? Well, <laughs> I don't I, know. Yeah. It's, it's not the right life for me. No, it's that, it's that uh, Mama Rose moment, right? Some people can thrive and bloom, living life in the living room, right? That's okay for some people who don't know they're alive, right? So right. that's that's her take on it. But I also will say, you know, having um, 
as I look at our world right now, there are people I'm sure that I've looked at and gone, gosh, they're really letting their life roll by. And then I have to think, wait a second, what resources are they working with? Are they resourced? People who are not resourced cannot live their fullest creative life. People who are not resourced cannot live fully into their purpose. They just can't. It's one of the ways we keep people oppressed and down and silenced generationally. And so when I think about feel safe, hmm, cannot, cannot live into curiosity at all. Absolutely. Like if there's not safety and you know, and that's also about like societal resilience, you know, I I don't believe necessarily in safe space, but I do believe in resilient space. And, and I I know I can't always be safe. I mean, I walk through the world with a female body. Like I know for sure, (laughs) depending where I'm at, I'm not always safe, but I do feel really resilient and resourced. And so then I feel brave and I feel like I can try shit out. Um, And I know that um, in another world where I was not resourced and I did not feel safe, I was not making big, bold moves. Nobody can. Well, and I can, I can see that in the lives of people I know, people Mm -hmm. who, did not have particularly supportive childhoods or even abusive ones. That's one of the reasons I started the creative alchemy cycle too. It was just really important to me um, to be a place of permission giving uh, and resourcing people. I mean, I can't put money in their pocket and I can't, you know, make um, the, the, the neighborhood around them safer, but I sure can um, help them navigate their own creative impulses and give them permission to be bold mm-hmm. and to engage. Um, that's where I can do my work. You know, my, that's where my medicine lies. Ooh, I like that. Mm. I haven't thought of it like that. Right. We all have a, a medicine. My friend Anya. We Hankin, all have a medicine. Yeah. My friend Anya Hankin always asks, what special medicine do you offer the world? And I love that. Oh, I love it. I am so glad that Shannon <laughs> introduced Yay, us and Shannon. Us because this is just such a profound conversation and I'm, I'm, I'm just, just loving it. Thank oh, you. Oh, wonderful. Me too. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, oh, I'm going to be thinking about this for so, I mean, I'm going to have like 5 billion questions after I'm done with this and I'm thrilled. You know where that. to find me. You know where to I, find me, Jen. <laughs> um, I think I only ha- I have a couple more questions for yeah, you. Yeah, sure. You moved from Dallas to rural Oregon. I did. And I want to hear about that decision, but I also want to hear about how do you know what the next right step is? Mm. Sure. I'll, I'll answer your first question first and your second question second. Um, my partner, Jack, was... Um, the head of acting at Southern Methodist University. We were doing some great work. He was on the trajectory that he was told he needed to be on as an academic. Um, he himself is trained as an actor. God, he's got over 120 professional productions under his belt. And like, he's just a really wow. solid, like steward of the arts. Um, but he also was coming into a place and I don't think he'd mind me saying this here. Um, he was in a place where he was feeling, uh, like his training as a white man in the eighties was totally obsolete for the students that were actually in front of him at that time. 
this is in 2017. And we had just had, oh gosh, Alton Sterling um, and um, Philando Castile had just been murdered by police. And in Dallas in 2016, there was a um, protest in the streets. And there was also separately a lone gunman who took down five police officers in Dallas. And I remember really clearly in July 2016, and we were having a real wake up moment as a family. And we were just like, we cannot do this. How do we step into right relationship with this conversation with Black Lives Matter, with where we're at in our lives? So um, I think betraying whiteness and betraying capitalism and betraying cisness and betraying able-bodiedness is sort of our way of stepping out of the spaces where we were um, approved of and we needed something new. Conver like, and at the same time, sort of, I guess, coincidentally, but maybe not because I'm, I think there's higher powers at work sometimes. My mother's partner, um, my stepfather, beloved stepfather, was dying of cancer. Jack's brother had just been, um, he'd had, he had MS, has MS, and was having some huge health issues. We were seeing the end of the line with what was happening with him. And we thought, what are we doing out in the middle of Texas doing work? We maybe we don't even believe in anymore. We've got to get out of here. We got to go be with our family and help them die. I am a birth doula and a death doula. I am very connected to death processes as a process that's important and need, you know, we, you have to walk through it together and I didn't want to be separate. And also uh, the state of Texas had just withdrawn their, um, we had a $15, $15 million cutback in Medicaid for medically fragile children. My son was cut off from his medical coverage. Um, paying for my child is about $90,000 a year in Texas if I don't have insurance. That's way above both of our salaries put together. So um, we decided we were done. And we moved out here to Eastern Oregon, which is where my mother has a farm. And we could be in hitting distance of Seattle. And it also was a place where Jack, my partner, could stop working. And he could homeschool our other child, Walker. And I could take over as sole breadwinner for our family. And we just knew we needed to get our overhead down low so that we could live off of $1,200, $1,400 a month and still survive. I knew that if we unhooked ourselves from having to pay big rent and having to pay city prices for parking and everything, I mean, God, I paid like $180 in parking in a month, every month, you know, that's crazy to me now. But um, if I could get my money down, then we'd have a lot of freedom. And it's sort of crazy now, but we actually have had a um, income increase by quitting a very big academic job. <laughs> leaving huh. the city and moving out here and letting me just write plays and make paintings. <laughs> so, um, so the money that's available to us every month is a little bit bigger. And also Oregon is um, a Medicaid state that took the money during the affordable care act. So they actually have some structure in place to help me care for my child mm -hmm. who up until we moved here was still wheelchair bound and 
non-ambulatory and non-verbal and having all sorts of issues. And now we're back in the middle of that. We're having lots of health issues right now too. So um, I'm watching the state of Oregon really catch us. And it's like, oh, the move was a good one. So we made those choices together as a family. It was a hard decision to make, mostly for my partner, because he had been told his whole life, this is what you're after. Like you can yeah. chair, you get to be chair of the division. That was his next promotion that he was up for, and um, he just yeah tenure tenure quit. track academic yeah. If you're a tenured academic in theater, it's, yeah. if you're not on Broadway, that's the dream. Totally, right that's a dream, right? He was doing it, and yeah, and he was still working. I mean, he was still working as a voice and speech coach, and traveling all over the country, and doing work and acting, and oh my gosh, he just walked so that we could have this life. So it was a bigger decision for him. For me, I was like, mm-hmm. I'm out of here. <laughs> Let's go. Please God, yeah, like, get me out of here. Get oh, please out. Got it. We're done. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm I'm out. And I wanted to come be with my family. So um, yeah. in the meantime, his mother actually left Seattle and now lives in town with us in a town of 250 people. So it's kind of wonderful. Everyone's here. Taking over. I know. I I've got a big master plan. My, I want all my, <laughs> my my good friends to come out out, out here. I also worked What's at a Netflix. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. No. 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 Please go. <laughs> the total sidebar. Wasn't there a Netflix show about an a a a, a, a cult in Oregon? Oh that yes. Took over an entire town. Well, yes. Well, I know yours. Is uh, not hopefully, going to end I'm way. not as yeah. Osho. Yeah. No, I'm That's not right. the uh, oh god the Bagwan. Right. Yeah, that was amazing. I watched that and freaked out. Had no idea. I was too young when that happened. So I don't remember. (laughs) But yeah. Um, No, I'm definitely not the bag one, luckily. But I do want to have my little commune with my family and friends out here. That would be really juicy and lovely. Um, But yeah, we moved out here. And we really just it felt right. It felt really right. And your to your second question, how do I know when to make a move? And how do I know what I um, I, I really do have an intuitive sense of what I need. I don't have an intuitive sense about what my family needs. So it's definitely a conversation and it's a negotiation. <laughs> and um, we have four souls here, all of whom are very different. And we, we move as a team, but, um, and we have to think of it like that because we have Charlie to take care of. It's not like usual families. We have some big needs. And Mm -hmm. so I'm aware of that. But um, when I left my job this summer, it really was just like, what do I need? And I move slowly, actually. If I I did everything when I thought I should, uh, it might be a little bit early. I'm always a little, for some reason, ahead of the curve with what I think I need or what I will need. And that's a good thing. And I need to pay attention to that more often. Um, I sometimes I stay, I stay too long. (laughs) Yeah. But it also sounds that like when you're, when it's time, really time to make the move, Mm -hmm. you are ready. I am. You've been preparing for it. You've, you've saw it coming somewhere in your body and your spirit. And now the time is here and you can move. And you know, I, I think empires fall. Like that's what happens. Empires fall. They all do even the really well-built ones. And so I'm um, really attuned to what we need now. That question is always at the front of my mind when I'm talking with my partner about how we're going to manage our family life. What do we need now? Well, last week was different. Like, for instance, my son, uh, Charlie, is having um, a huge uptick in medical issues. He is not the kid he was eight weeks ago. We went from walking 100% of the time, he's back in a wheelchair. We're having huge digestive issues that are so bad that we're now considering 
a stoma bag and a G tube, and they're going to be cutting into my kids soon. I know it. They just, we can't keep them hydrated and we can't keep them nourished. And it's breaking my heart, but, um, things are shifting quickly underneath our feet. And so I need to make choices that are going to support him and support my partner, Jack, as his caregiver, his main caregiver, because I'm now working to support our family. And we don't always get 100% of what we want, but I feel like if everyone gets a little bit of what they need, then, hey, game on. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. Right? (laughs) How do you stay centered when the ground is shifting under your feet or, or perhaps or do I, <laughs> or do you? Yes. And I, and I know that, you know, oftentimes we don't, and that is completely okay. Sure. Um, yeah. I lose my shit and I do things half-assed a lot. And I know a house, a tree just fell on your house. A tree. Well. Absolutely. A 90 foot ponderosa just came down on my house last month about, cause um, you needed that. Yeah. Yeah. So there are things shit happens, right? Mama nature's mm-hmm. like, Oh, you thought you were in charge? No, it's me. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. <laughs> so the yeah, your question about centeredness, I, I will say that um, a creative life and painting and telling stories and doing my big work, my purpose driven big work is what keeps me centered. Um, I don't do it at the expense of my family, but I, I also won't stop doing it at the expense of me. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a balance I'm always trying to strike and it doesn't always happen. Um, but I don't expect it to, right. <laughs> I always think about my creative life as like the cortisol levels, right. Cortisol levels go up when we're under stress and, um, they are, it's okay if they go through the roof and it's okay if they drop out, but they can't stay there. They have to come back. Like that's what a healthy body does. It sort of brings the cortisol levels back into a a central place of stasis. And so I am okay living on the edge at the top of that um, graph. And I am okay living at the bottom of the edge of that graph. And I know that at some point I'll come back to -hmm. center. And if I stay too long at the top or the bottom, then I know something's wrong and I need to make some new choices. And so I don't say standard all the time, but I definitely stay creative all the time. And that sure helps. <laughs> you were talking about resilience mm, yeah, earlier. It's, yeah. It's a resilience practice. The ground practice. shifting under your feet is, and trees falling on you is not safe. No. But you no. can be resilient through it. Absolutely. And I would much rather live really boldly and out loud and in service of my community then play safe and be quiet and wonder what I could have done. This is a marvelous segue into one of the last questions I want to ask you. If somebody is really struggling to live boldly mm-hmm. and maybe they feel like they know what their next step is, but they're really scared to take it for whatever reason. Yeah. What advice would you give them? I think it's okay to grieve what you're leaving behind. It's okay to miss it. And to, um, I mean, when we are in a transformative state, we are the goo, right? We're the goo in the chrysalis. (laughs) I mean, I know it's kind of a cliche, like metaphor, but when that caterpillar gets inside its chrysalis, it thinks it's dying. (laughs) 
-hmm. And it does. It like, it takes itself apart and becomes something entirely different. And then it starts to trust how to put itself back together. And I think that when we're in a transformative liminal process like that, we have to trust that we will grieve what we lose and something new will replace it. And it'll be more beautiful than anything you could have ever actually planned. And I always think about um, the idea that our plans are just plans and our thoughts are just thoughts and our expectations are just expectations. And what we lose, maybe we were never meant to keep in the first place. And were we to hang on to it, that puts us in a state of arrested development and out of sync with the nature of things. And to me, the nature of things is to find joy through a grief process. So yeah, if you're stuck, it's okay. Stuck is a good place. Stuck is a a powerful place to be because what comes next is going to change your life. You just don't get to decide how. That's all. <laughs> you don't get to decide I how. Ended the podcast <laughs> right there. That would have been. That was that was a perfect ending, but I'm not going to because I have more to talk to you about. Okay, um, I'm here for it. So yes, I suppose you were talking about how the the metaphor of like the butterfly, mm-hmm. the caterpillar, and the chrysalis is is um, overused or trite. Yeah, can be. But yeah. I don't know that a lot of people know about the goo part. The imaginal cells. And the that, goo. Yeah, that just completely dissolves, yeah. except for one little anchor point. Yeah. And I think a lot, I, for a long time, I thought a lot about the goo. Yeah. I the like, mess. I'm feeling very I'm, gooey I'm right messy. Now. I'm not, that's okay. <laughs> and now I'm starting to think more and more about that one little anchor point. Yeah. There's this, there's, they're actually called imaginal cells. When I read that, I was like, that can't be real. That's, you know, that's the artist part of it, right? And it's like, no, scientifically, there's a cell structure and it's called the imaginal cell. I did not know. And that. it holds it holds the um the structural information of the butterfly and it lives in the caterpillar. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get released or um catalyzed until it's complete goo, until the caterpillar's insides dissolve and become that primordial ook that we talked about earlier. The, the building and then stuff. Because Im- I, I, I imagine all there. you're pulling that the imaginal cells must be pulling, you know, the carbon molecules and the right. from this goo that was a caterpillar. Well, it's interesting because they they start to multiply and they're they're disparate in the in the goo. They they aren't connected in the goo yet. They're they're separate and they think they're alone, and so they move wildly trying to find each other in the goo, and those cells think they're dying. They also are like, I gotta find my people here inside the goo caterpillar. <laughs> and and of course, this is very non-scientific. There are some wonderful books about imaginal cells that'll give you the exact science, but they think they're alone. They're trying to find each other. And when they do, it starts this process in place where they start to link up and that becomes the building blocks of the butterfly. And then once it knows that it are, there are others like it and it is not alone in at a point of death, then it can actually build something new. And I love that idea of you have to connect and you have to bridge the time of isolation. And you have to know and trust that there is someone else out there who is reverberating in the way that you're reverberating and that you're going to find each other. You know, I love this idea of sympathetic resonance, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, if you've got tuning forks and in a space and you hit one, the one that's tuned at that same vibration 
without being struck is going to start vibrating and giving off noise. And then that creates its own power and its own um, kinetic forward motion. Um, and, and so our cells are like that too, you know, as a body worker, as somebody who, puts hands on people and does massage work and healing work. Like we have to be able to knit ourselves back together. And that in and of itself is a creative process, which is why I love that that cell structure is called an imaginal cell. Cause it's like, what can you imagine that you might be? <laughs> um, and also I want to just take a moment to, to note that we are already it. Like we don't have to do be grow differently. It's already here. It's what you said. It's like the spark is already inside the caterpillar. It doesn't know it's there. And even the spark doesn't know what it's for. (laughs) So, you know, I love the idea that we can grow and we can do bridge work and discover some serious purpose-driven work in our lives. But that, um, that is not a prerequisite for worth. That is not a prerequisite for living. You already are all the things you need to be. We're doing this interview on a Friday. (laughs) And my whole weekend just got better because of this conversation. (laughs) And I knew it would. I knew it would. I'm so glad. uh, Mine too. Oh, it's just absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. My gosh, it's just such a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks for asking such good questions. I don't get asked about this kind of stuff a lot. Because I go on and on. That's why I talk too much. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do not talk about my friend Sarah like that. Uh, <laughs> I know she's a new friend, no. but don't talk she's about her. She's a new friend. I hear you. I hear you. Um, <laughs> well, and I have one last question. But before we wrap up, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. You have so much on your plate. And I'm just, it's, I'm honored and feel so privileged to, that you, that you agreed to do this. Oh, it's, um, the pleasure is all mine. And I, I really believe in taking time to connect with people, especially during the pandemic people. You, I don't ever get the opportunity anymore to meet someone I don't know without a mask on and like talk. So this is such a pleasure, like a special pandemic pleasure. <laughs> I remember, um, my girlfriend in the fall joined a very small running group for the, mm-hmm. for the first time. And there were only five or six of them and they were all masked all the time and I remember the first morning she was going out to to meet them I suddenly was like oh my gosh you get to meet people yeah it's a real pleasure and it's like it's been taken from us Mm -hmm. so this is so lovely thank you thank you all right Mm -hmm. last question for real okay you sent me a picture I did. And it is, and I'm going to, I will describe it a little bit that you tell me what I'm missing and what I'm getting wrong. Sure, sure, Um, sure. It's a peach, right? Yep. And it looks like it's probably a fresh peach. Brand new. Plucked from a tree. tree. Mm -hmm. Plucked from the tree. And on it is this beautiful, hairy little spider. Not so little, actually. It's huge. (laughs) (laughs) But it's this, this is hairy, big spider and the colors of the spider are complementary to the colors of the peach. Yes. Tell me about this picture and why (laughs) you sent it and where it comes from. And I love it because I love spiders. I do too. I do too. I think um, weaving magic, weaver web magic is a big deal for me. So, um, 
spider energy, spider totems, um, they show up in so many different cultures. And in Irish culture, um, it's definitely the weaver woman, the woman who is on her loom, making the world anew in a tapestry. You know, we have arachne, of course, in the Greek tradition. And so we have versions of that. I love spiders. Um, so yes, spider energy is definitely all over that picture. But um, one of the things I do out here in Eastern Oregon to help pay the bills, because it's not all stories and paintings, <laughs> is that I am on a thinning and harvest crew at an organic orchard um, in Richland, Oregon. And I've worked there now for four years in a row. And I love the work. Mm-hmm. We're always up the ladders and we have apples and plums and peaches and a whole bunch of varieties of apples and pears and Asian pears, walnuts, hazelnuts, um, apricots. And so I really love that work. And I was picking peaches. This was sort of like late July last year. And I picked that peach and I go fast because, you know, we're picking peaches to fill boxes to sell at market. So it's not like I'm Go, you know, over going over every peach and admiring its perfect beauty. <laughs> but I reached down and grabbed that peach and I grabbed that spider with it. And it's like a peach on a peach. It's so big. The spider was huge. If it's my fist, it's easily covers two knuckles. And uh, I also have a little bit of a fear of spiders. So that's why I think I love them too. So I have a little bit of a fear and I yelped very loudly. Of course you did. <laughs> and the um, orchardist that I work for was like, you know, Sarah, are you okay? And I said, I just grabbed the spider on this peach and I dropped it on the ground and he picked it up and the spider was still attached and he brought it back up to me and he said, this is incredible. We know that they're out here, but we rarely see them. And this uh, spider is a, um, like a salamander. It changes color based on which fruit it's on. Stop. Yeah. So it was a peachy pink blush color because it was on the peach and I didn't see it. And then he took the spider and put it over on a, a really dark purple plum. And the whole thing slowly just turned like eggplant purple. It was incredible. And I don't know, I can't remember the name of the spider. There is, I'm sure, a beautiful name for that spider. But it was just an incredible um, adaptive um, being. And I just loved seeing him so much. And uh, I realized too, that the peach was not just there for me. The peach is there for that spider as well. (laughs) And the peach is there. um, This organic orchard in particular has a really beautiful um, sort of permaculture process where about a 10th of the fruit ends up on the, the floor of the orchard and is composted and just goes right back to the bugs and the, you know, the mitochondria and all of the microbial ele- elements that are in the soil. And it's, um, it's a beautiful process to watch. And it was a great reminder that while it's beautiful and delicious, this peach is just as much that spiders as it is mine as it belongs in the hands of someone I'm going to sell it to in the market. Although I dropped it. So it became my peach. I did eat it, but, (laughs) but you know, but I took the pit and I threw it on the ground so that other animals could have it. (laughs) But I just love that spider. And I, I love the weaving magic that came with them. And I love sharing this world with creatures like that. They're just as much part of our community as, as we are. Nobody can see this because it's a podcast, but I'm doing a little happy dance right now. That was a little so dance. That so was beautiful. amazing. And I got to see your little dance, your happy dance. Thank you. 
I, I, I have found that sometimes when I'm feeling things very strongly that I lose words for them, which is inconvenient in a podcast host. <laughs> I'm getting better about it, but. I think a dancing podcast host is, yeah, it might seem incongruous, but we can feel your energy. So that's good. <laughs> I hope that's true. I'm going to leave that little bit of silence in. I'm not even going to cut that. I'm not going to snip it at all. Just leave it right in. Oh, The dancing silence. Sarah Greenman, thank you so much. Oh, Jen Cox, thank you so much. This was really, really fun. Wasn't that delightful? Oh, I am so happy I got to speak with Sarah and get to know her just a little bit better. I fully intend to show up on her farm one day with my tent in one hand and a journal and some paints and brushes in my backpack just to soak it all in. I've actually done a little of her creative alchemy work and it is utterly inspiring and opening and freeing. If you're interested, you can find her at sarahgreenman.com. That's Sarah with an H, green like the color, man like man.com sarahgreenman.com. That website, I have to tell you, it's a treasure trove of gorgeous photos and inspiring and enriching blog posts and tools for freeing your own creativity. You can also find her on Instagram at sarah.greenman.creative. Highly recommend. It's actually one of my favorite accounts. So again, a huge thank you to Sarah for taking the time and for bringing her whole self to the conversation. And thank you, listener, for spending an hour with us. The Beautiful and True Project is sponsored by Rachel Angus Fitness. You may have heard the episode with Rachel a few weeks ago, in which case you already know how great she is. But if not, let me tell you a story, one she hasn't even heard yet. I went on a backpacking trip last week. A strenuous, gorgeous, up-and-down, eight-mile hike to camp, and then a truly grueling but wonderful four miles back to the car the next morning. With a 30-pound pack on my back, and I'm already not the lightest of individuals. It was tough. But because of my work with her, because I am strong and fit and as flexible as I get, not only did it not kill me, I loved the challenge. And the only thing really sore the next day were my ankles from having to scramble up and down steep slopes with gnarled roots. I said it was tough. If that little story sparked something inside you, check out rachelangusfitness.com. That's Rachel, R-A-C-H-A-E-L, Angus, like the steak, fitness.com. And if you sign up for any service, use the code BEAUTIFUL20 for 20% off. If you give it a try, I get a referral discount on my own workouts. Again, that's rachelangusfitness.com and use the code BEAUTIFUL20 for 20% off. And now for a pitch of my own. I very much hope that you're finding inspiration and encouragement in these conversations. And if you're still listening, I suspect you might be. If that's the case, I would love your support in a couple of ways. If you can, I would love you to become a patron on Patreon. A monthly contribution of even $1 per episode goes a long way to helping me keep bringing you these conversations. But wait, there's more. A contribution of any level will get you access to a regular newsletter in which I'll give you stories from all over that are beautiful and true and inspiring and encouraging. 
Plus, I'll be posting a terrible drawing done by yours truly of a moment from each episode. I promise you that I am a rotten visual artist, especially when it comes to drawing people. <laughs> These drawings will be laughably bad and hopefully quite entertaining. So you can go to patreon.com and search for The Beautiful and True Project or for Jennifer Cox. I would be very honored and grateful. But you're also welcome to donate to the project on my website, beautiful-true.com. Like I said, even $1 per episode helps a lot. But there are other ways to get involved that, that involve $0. If you are finding inspiration or encouragement in these conversations, please tell even one friend about them or post a link to your favorite episode on social media. These stories are worth hearing, and I need your help to get the word out. All right, pitch over. As always, I thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me. And I hope that each and every one of you is finding ways to create a life of your own that is full of meaning and purpose and joy. Talk to you next time.